Well, good morning again. I realized I failed to introduce myself the first time I was up here. My name is Jeremy, and I'm the family minister here at Randall, and it's so good to be with you this morning. When I met with uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Milo back in June to kind of talk about dates and logistics of coming on staff, uh, in that conversation they said, um, well, pencil in July 31st um, to have you speak on that Sunday. And I was like, great, awesome, really excited about that. And uh, Pastor Brian then said, yeah, uh, I think we're going to have you preach on Lamentations. And I laughed because I naturally, I think, thought that uh, they were just pulling a prank on the new guy, right? Like, let's tell him he's going to preach on Lamentations, and then we'll all have a good laugh, and then we'll tell him uh, some different, some parable or something that Jesus said. And, and so I laughed and said, well, as long as you give me Lamentations chapter 3, we'll be good. And then uh, he said, actually, I, th- I think you are that week that we're doing Lamentations 3. And suddenly I realized he was serious. The next thought I had in my head was, what? church does a summer series walking through the book of lamentations evidently randall church does um but but i have to say like all jokes this series has been for me both encouraging and challenging and uplifting and and my prayer is that that is the same for you that you are challenged and encouraged by this book but most of all that you see jesus in this book the good news of jesus in this book book. Will you join me in a brief moment of prayer? God, we we thank you for this morning. God, for the opportunity to to come and worship you together. God, I ask that this morning that uh, the words that I say not be my words, God, but your words, your words that you want to speak to your people this morning. So God, give me the words to say and give us all open ears and open hearts to receive what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we all love a good story. Everybody loves good stories. And so for just a second, I want you to think about your favorite story. Your favorite story. It might be uh, your favorite story from a book, maybe a novel or a biography or uh, a historical book. Well, that Think of your favorite story. Or it could be a television show or, or, or a movie. What is your favorite story? Do you got one in mind? I want you now to think about what makes that a good story to you. Is it, is it the compelling characters in the story? Is it an exciting setting that takes place? Is it the deeply emotional stakes in the story? Is it edge-of-your-seat conflict? What about that story makes it a good story? Maybe it's all of those. Maybe it's all of those combined. But, but there is sort of a, a standard of what a good story is, right? Like, like we can tend to identify a good story from a bad story. Well, I think some of that is because in 1826, or 1863, I'm sorry, Gustav Freitag introduced to the world uh, this idea of a pyramid, a, a sort of narrative pyramid to good storytelling. I'm going to draw it for you this morning. Not very well, so don't judge me for my drawing. Um, but this is his good storytelling uh, pyramid, kind of like this. And there's five points to it. The first point to a good story is exposition. Exposition. In other words, 
you're explaining the setting, explaining the characters, kind of setting the stage for the story. You then move up the pyramid into what is called the rising action. Terrible handwriting, terrible handwriting. I'm left-handed, you got to bear with me here. The rising action. This is when the story gets really good, right? The characters are starting, the mystery is starting to uh, begin to happen, right? It, it, you're, you're turning the page because you want to see what happens next. And then we get to the top of the pyramid and we get to the climax of the story. I spelled that wrong. That was good. Climax of the story. This is the, the tipping point, the, the point of no return. This is typically the most exciting moment of the story. Uh, think, I'll give you some examples in just a second if you're struggling to think of a good story with a good climax. Then we go down the pyramid to the falling action. The story is beginning to now edge towards its completion. The, the climax has happened and now it's beginning to resolve. And then we get to the fifth point, the end, the resolution of the story. I didn't give myself enough space here. So there we go. Once again, don't judge me for my handwriting, right? So this pyramid is good storytelling. That, that is what in, in 1800s Gustav Freitag said, this is good storytelling. And most of the stories that we think are good stories follow this pattern. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because a key piece to a strong story is a good climax, a good tipping point, a good turning point of the story. Climactic moments are often the most iconic moments in the stories we think of. Let me give you two quick examples. The first one, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. I'm a big Star Wars nerd. This is not only the climactic moment of that movie, but of the entire trilogy when Darth Vader reveals his true identity to Luke Skywalker. I won't spoil it in case you haven't seen it, but it's been out for 40 years I still won't spoil it, but you should probably go see it. It's been out for 40 years. Lots of time to go see that. But, but that's the climactic moment of that movie. Or take, for example, the literary masterpiece from 1960, Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham. The, the unnamed main character of the story is pestered by Sam I Am to try these green eggs and hams. He, he offers it on boats and on cars and on goats and on stars, something like that. And, and yet the man still refuses, but the climactic moment of green eggs and ham, he tries it and he likes the green eggs and ham. Now, uh, as a parent of a three-year-old now, I empathize with Sam I Am uh, trying to get my child to eat things. I'm negotiating. Will you eat it in your chair? Will you eat it anywhere? Uh, and anybody else feel any parents? Okay, all right, we've got some hands. I was concerned that I was going to be the only parent that had an imperfect child here. But uh, good to know I'm not the only one. That's good. So the climax of a story is the turning point, the tipping point, the defining moment that changes everything. The climax sometimes in stories can change our perspectives sometimes. It can cause us to evaluate what we are experiencing. And this morning, we're diving into the center of Lamentations, chapter 3. And even though, as both Pastor Brian and Pastor Milo have explained, that the five chapters in Lamentations are actually poems, separate 
poems, there is a sense that we are now at the climactic moment of this book. Not only is chapter 3 uh, the longest of the three, but, but even within it, as we will see, there is its own climax within the poem. This tipping point of the laments. Now chapter 3 pivots us from what was largely communal poems of lament in the first two chapters to very deeply personal lament, as we will see. The first 18 verses of this poem are graphically describing the author's feelings towards God and the feelings for what they are experiencing in the moment. Look at how this poem starts in chapter, or verse 1. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Point one, we are at the exposition. We find out who is this author. The author identifies himself as the man who has seen affliction, and he attributes that affliction to the rod of God's wrath. What exactly is a rod? I want to explain that for us for just a second. In the Bible, the rod is often seen as the, a symbol of power, authority, of judgment, of discipline. But it's also a physical object that shepherds would have used. We're often familiar with the, the shepherd's staff, right? The, the candy cane type looking staff. But they also carried around another thing called the rod. And it was sort of like a giant baseball bat. It was a blunt object weapon that sometimes was used for disciplining their sheep. And so the author is saying, I am the man who has seen affliction by the discipline of God's wrath. And as we continue, we see the wrath from God alienates the author from the grace of God, according to him. Let's continue in verse 4 of Lamentations 3. He continues, He has made my skin and flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. The author will continue this imagery of being stuck uh, or, or being a prisoner in verse 7. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. You can see why I thought this was a joke that I'd be preaching in Lamentations uh, just last month. But can you think of a time in your life where you have may maybe felt this way? Maybe you identify with the author. Like God was maybe surrounding you with bitterness and hardship. The, the, the struggles of illness and trouble and, and stress and, and drama all piling on top of you where you feel like you are in a pit and unable to escape. I know I have. I know I have felt the deep sorrow of lament in my own life. Pastor Brian and Pastor Milo did not realize when they scheduled me to speak this Sunday the significance of having me preach this Sunday. The month of July is a season of lament for my family because yesterday marked the five-year anniversary of my mom passing away at the age of 56, pretty suddenly. And on top of that, 
Monday, last Monday, was her birthday. And so the double whammy of both the anniversary of her passing and her birthday, five days apart, the feeling of lament for our family is pretty real right now. And as we continue walking in this poem, you can feel the deep anguish and sorrow that the author is feeling. And if, like me, you read this, you begin to notice times in your own life, you might be able to sympathize with this. But I'm not necessarily talking about these big, giant moments in our life that cause us lament. The most dramatic or most horrific moments, these can occur even in the smallest of times. Lament happens in all different moments of our life. The loss of a friendship, the the struggle of everyday stress, the challenge of decreased social interactions over the last few years, etc. These two are moments that we can lament. We can feel the pain and the anguish in. Now, I won't continue into reading uh, Lamentations 3, but the author continues and uses imagery of God as a bear or a lion lying in wait ready to pounce on him. Uh, Or imagery of an archer, and God is the archer pointing his arrow right at the author. Perhaps the most violent imagery is in verse 16 where the author describes being trampled and his teeth being broken on gravel by God. This is deeply, deeply horrific lament. Feelings that I pray we never feel. But often we do. Often we do. I hope that what you see here is not just someone who is sad, not just someone who's had a bad day at the office or has just had enough with the kids because they didn't eat their lunch, they didn't take a nap, they're running all over the place, there's crayon on the wall, my mind's going crazy, right? This isn't that. This is multiple bad days at the office. This is kids have been bad for months, and so my, I am just feeling inescapable lament. This is a prolonged feeling of sadness. These moments demand lament. Now, I remember in week two, uh, Pastor Milo shared that there are stages to lament. There are stages to lament. We've seen two of them. We've seen the crying out, and we've seen the complaint. The author of Lamentations 3 has done both of those. But we're not even halfway through the poem. And we're about to turn to the climax. Starting in verse 17, the author says, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Here we go. We're turning to the tipping point. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, 
I will wait for him. What I absolutely love about this section of Lamentations 3 is even though the author is turning to praise, he is turning to worship, it's not separated from the crying out. It's not separated from the complaining. The author is not suppressing their feelings in order to turn to God in praise. It says, I, I remember my affliction and wandering. I'm remembering it. Their soul is still downcast, yet they call this to mind. They haven't gotten over it. They haven't moved on. No, they're still in the process of lament. They're still in the pain, yet they praise. It's a beautiful reminder for us that lament and praise are not separate things. They are not mutually exclusive. They can be together and oftentimes are together. I think sometimes we think of lament and praise as those theater masks, those comedy and tragedy theater masks, right? Like praise is when you're happy and lament is when you're sad and they're, ki- they're separated. You can't, you can't mix the two and it's a false separation. It, it creates a sort of mindset that says I can't give God any of my praise until I'm happy, until I've had a good week, then I'll come to church and praise God. I don't know about you, but if that's the mindset we're living with, I'm coming to church most weeks not in a place to praise God if I have to have a great week to come to church and praise God. I'm not, I would say 85% of my weeks aren't great all of the time. Things happen during the week. But the author of Lamentations shows us something different. They show us praise in the midst of laments. That our praise is not based on our circumstances. Instead, praise is part of lament. But what is the author praising God for? Well, we see in verse 23 through 24, I count three things that the author is praising God for. First is God's love. He's praising God for his love. Second, he's praising him for his compassions, or some translations may say mercy. And thirdly, he's praising God for his faithfulness. But the question that hangs over our heads when we hear this, the question that that naturally gets asked in these moments is, how can you praise God for being faithful and loving in a season where you feel like he's not listening? How do you praise God when you feel like you're stuck in a pit and God's not there? I want to be clear, I'm not saying that praising God in the midst of pain is easy. But yet the author of Lamentations is doing that. How can they do that? How can they say God is good and loving and compassionate when just a few breaths earlier says God's a lion waiting to pounce on them? Well, it's because of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is the key to all of this. The author does not say God was faithful. He says God is faithful. He's using the present tense in this text. He's saying God is faithful, and he is saying that God is faithful because God has shown to be faithful in the past. If you'll bear with me, I want to do a quick survey of some of the promises that the author of Lamentations would have been calling to mind as he was saying, great is your faithfulness. Three of them, all from early on in sort of the 
the, the life of God's chosen people, the Israelites. The first one is God's promise to Abraham that we see in Genesis 12 and repeated in 15 and 17. God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. And that that son is going to become the father of many nations, and those nations will be blessed through Abraham. But God makes that promise when Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children, and he was 75 years old. But yet God showed his faithfulness 25 years later by giving Abraham and Sarah Isaac, their son. Another promise that he would have called to mind was, that, that he tell, God tells Abraham in Genesis 15 that his descendants would become slaves in a foreign country, but they would be led out of slavery by God. And later in Exodus, we see the Israelites for 400 years are slaves in Egypt, but God, through Moses, leads his people out of slavery into freedom. And then finally, we can look at the promised land. God again promises Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give your descendants this land. And so, the Israelites leaving Egypt are excited to enter this promised land. But what happens is, for 40 years, an entire generation passes, and yet God is still faithful. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, they inherit the promised land. Everything that God promised came to pass. God's faithfulness was true. But the author of Lamentations more than likely would have had a more relevant promise in mind during this time. He'd be looking back at those promises to Abraham and see their fulfillment, but there was a promise that they may have had uh, in their mind as they were writing this. A promise that was given through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet God sent to the Israelites, telling them about their unfaithfulness, proclaiming that because of your unfaithfulness, Babylon's coming, and you're going to be driven out. You're going to be exiled. In fact, that's why many scholars and theologians believe that Jeremiah was the author of Lamentations, because of that reason. But we see that through Jeremiah, God not only promised destruction and exile, he promised something else. And this verse may be a little familiar to you. In Jeremiah chapter 29, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I will gather you all from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This famous Bible verse, this Bible verse that many of us know by heart, is a promise from God, a promise that despite their exile, despite the destruction that they are seeing to their holy city, in 70 years God was going to return, and he was going to bring them back. He was going to bring them out of exile back to Jerusalem. And this, this is the promise that made the author of Lamentations say, the Lord is my portion, I will wait for him. I will wait for the fulfillment of God's promise. More than likely, the author wouldn't have seen that promise fulfilled. But yet he says, I will wait 
I will wait for the Lord. He's been faithful to us before. He will be faithful to us now. I know this promise will come to pass. And so you can see how the author of Lamentations looks to God's fulfilled promises in the past and can, even with a heavy heart, even with sorrow, say, God is faithful and good. That even though I may not feel like he is good right now, even though my life may not show evidence of God's goodness right now, I know he is good. He has not failed. He will not fail me. And so I will praise him. But what about us? What about us in 2022? When we find ourselves in a season of lament, no matter the situation, maybe something large like the loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, some other tragedy in your life. But like I said, it could be something small too. Maybe you've lost friends. Maybe you've lost friends over what is seemingly petty disagreements. Or maybe... You're lamenting over just mental hardships in your life. The lament of lost experiences, like Brian talked about in week one over these past two years. The loss of the, the experiences that we were able to have. Whatever it is, when lament is the prevailing attitude of our, of our lives, what do we look to? How do we respond to God in praise and hope? I'm glad you asked that question. See, the author is clinging to the fulfilled promises from God in the past and looking forward to promised hope in the future. And you and I, we do the same. We do the same. That's our response. But the fulfilled promise that we cling to so tightly is in fact the first promise God ever made with his people. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit. Sin enters the world and so too does death and lament. God kicks Adam and Eve out of paradise, out of the garden. They are exiled out of the garden. Should sound a little familiar, but God makes a promise before that. He promises in Genesis chapter 3 that from the offspring of Eve would come one to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the head of the enemy, to defeat sin, to defeat death, to defeat lament. And so for thousands of years, God's people looked to the fulfillment of that promise. And us in 2022, we know that promise has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Jesus upon his life, his death, his resurrection on the cross for the sins of the world, that those who believe in him would, would not perish but have everlasting life, that, that for those that are in him, they have hope for a new day. That's what gives us peace. That's what gives us hope and comfort, that there has come the one to defeat sin and death. And there's the fulfillment of Jesus which we look to in the past and we celebrate and we see God's faithfulness and his promise. But there is also, with hope, we look forward to the future promise of his return. You see, Jesus promised that he's coming back. And he's coming back to reestablish heaven and earth. To, to bring us back into right relationship 
forever, where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more lament. And so just like the author of Lamentations, we are looking to a fulfilled promise, but we look to the future hope. And we can say, we know he's coming back because God has been faithful to every promise. He will be faithful to this one. I want to go back to the opening line of Lamentations 3 for a second. Remember how we talked about God's rod of wrath? Well, Scripture speaks of God's rod in another way. A rod of comfort. Psalm 23 Maybe the most famous psalm, David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff comfort me. You see, shepherds, their rod was, yes, sometimes used for discipline, but more often than not, the weapon of the rod was actually used as a weapon against the enemies of the sheep, against the prey. And so this rod would have been a symbol of comfort to the sheep. It would have been a sign of comfort, of hope, of peace for them. See, God's rod of wrath, or maybe a better word is judgment, God's rod of judgment is very real. But His rod of comfort is just as real. And when we need it most, that comfort is there. And that comfort has a name, and his name is Jesus. As the band comes forward, I want to remind us that with Christ, we can sit in a season of lament. We can wonder where God is in all of this. And yet, because of Christ, we can say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That great is his faithfulness. But there's not just future and past hope that we look to. There is hope in the here and now. It wouldn't be enough if we just were like, we're stuck in lament until Jesus returns. No, the author of Lamentations says there is hope in the here and now. The author of Lamentations says it's compassions or mercies that are new every morning. That even when we don't necessarily feel those mercies, they're given to us each and every morning. The mercy of Christ is what renews our souls. It's it's what comforts us while we're sitting in the mess of lament. See, when my mom first passed, it was a season of deep sorrow. It was a painful lament, naturally. But even since then, smaller moments of life have come back and brought me to lament. Some of them might, not, might actually not be small, but, but things like my wedding, the birth of our son Micah, moments she was not here for. But even smaller moments. Like in April of 2021, when I got sick with COVID and all I wanted was my mom, the nurse, to take care of me. She wasn't there. Or when we took a family trip in January to Disney and it was a blast, it was so joyful, but I couldn't help but feel in those moments. My mom would be loving this right now. And it brought me into a place of lament. But every time that happens, I woke up every day and Christ had new mercies for me. 
the comfort was there in every moment of life. Even when you don't feel it in the morning, even when you wake up and the burden of lament hits you like a truck, his mercies are new every morning. So maybe you're going through a deep season of lament right now. I want to encourage you to hold to Christ. His mercies are new every morning. Maybe you've lost friendships over the past couple of years. Maybe over seemingly small disagreements. Maybe over big disagreements. But it's hard. Hold to Christ. His mercies are new every morning. Maybe you are weighed down with the stress of your life right now. Hold to Christ. His mercies are new every morning. Maybe you just wish things would go back to the way they were. Hold to Christ. His mercies are new every morning. We can trust in the goodness of God in the middle of our pain because he has proven time and time and time again he is good and faithful and loving. The track record of God is perfect. It's perfectly good, perfectly true. We can, like the author of Lamentations, remember Remember our pain, remember our lament, and give praise to God that his love never ceases. That even if it feels like he's not there, he is there and he is giving us mercies every single day. The mercies we so eagerly seek and search for are new every morning in Jesus. And that is good news. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, for your love, God, for your compassion on us, God, for your faithfulness. That, God, we can look to your word and we can see time and time again, you are faithful to your promise. We know that you're faithful to your promise, and so we hold true fast to the truth that you will continue to be faithful, that God, there is coming a day that those who trust in your Son will be with you where there will be no more pain, no more lament. And God, we will see your goodness and your mercy face to face, experiencing it in completeness. God, help us in the times in our life where we may feel the pain of lament. Help us to look to you, to remember even in our pain your goodness and let us hold to you the promise that you have given us in Jesus. God, help help us to see him, your son, as our rod of comfort, not the rod of wrath, but a rod of comfort who loves us and cares for us so much. God, I ask this today and every day of our lives. We love you and thank you. It's in the precious Son's name we pray. Amen.